Hello and welcome back to the Sitcom Club, resuming our conversation on men behaving badly. As before, this is Hey Holman Cat Co and joining me are Boggin Strovia. Hello. And Dr. Christian Troy. Hello. Chaps, when we got to the end of the previous podcast, we had been discussing a whole four series of Men Behaving Badly. We'd seen uh, characters and actors come and go. We'd seen it change channel. We'd seen it go post-watershed, all manner of different things. So we've now, unbelievably, still got two series plus a whole batch of Christmas specials to come. So who wants to kick off on series five? Series five, I think... Bok and Strovia, last time you were talking about how Series 4, Series 5, they were, for yourself, around about the peak of the, the series. Yes, that's right. I think that Series 5 is really the peak of Men Behaving Badly because it features some of the best episodes in the um, whole of the uh, six series itself, such as A Good Pub Guide, your mate versus your bird, cardigan, and also in series five, the relationships develop. The ice is more broken between Deborah and Tony, of course. Yeah, and Tony by this point has undergone, as he did actually, I think, at the beginning of series four, he's undergone something of a personality change because when he came in, DCT, you mentioned this before, when he came in in series two, he was very cocky, he was very sure of himself, he was very much a ladies' man, quite a successful ladies' man, if you want to put it like that. But by the time series four came round, he admitted as much that his inability to get it together with Deborah had meant that his confidence had taken quite a significant knock. Well, by series five, you've got to bear in mind that at the end of series four, he had an affair with Dorothy. And so, come series five, when he reappears, you have Tony returning from his trip around Europe with a beard. And Dorothy and Gary are generally comfortable together. Deborah, meanwhile, is unhappy. So you get this element where Tony is just about redeeming himself, but he comes back to the fray where he now has a reason to pursue Deborah because she is unhappy. And so so this kind of manipulation <laughs> continues on. The thing is, is that I would say that Series 4 was perhaps the epicentre of, of the series. It was the best series. Series 5 definitely has a few highlights. Some of the things that stand out for me are the good pub guide. When we reach, of course, a different situation regarding the local. Now, I'm going to interrupt you, actually, DCT, because we've had correspondence. Uh-huh. Subject just Golden then, Tony. Uh, well, not 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 right now. I mean, I mean, just like mere seconds ago, rather than this 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 exact moment. Breaking. But um, uh, Kutenbaum user Golden Tony, aka Necro Butcher One Eight Seven, uh, has tweeted us to ask us our opinion of the Les versus Ken debate. Um, now, I wasn't really aware that there was a big debate going on about this, but I haven't really browsed the company forums in regards to the specific instance. But I will say openly. I'm not ashamed that I, I do slightly favour Les over Ken. You know, you, you knew who you were with Les, and he was a bloody awful barman, and he had shockingly poor personal hygiene, and spilt his dandruff in the pints, and uh, once deliberately poisoned the customer with a barrel that had gone off. But nevertheless, he was a sort of old-fashioned publican, whereas Ken, Ken's a nice guy. It's difficult to dislike Ken. But it, it's clear that he's not really cut out for pub landlord 
But if I can uh, just come in here, Minka. Really, with uh, Les and Ken, Les uh, played by Dave Atkins in Series 3 and 4. Like you said, he was more slovenly, um, more untidy, dandruff going in the pints, etc. And of course, Ken came in with John Thompson. By that time, who was established in various series via The Fast Show. And also, he worked with Steve Coogan in um, Paul Cast Video Diary. So, by that point, he was established. So... You could almost say that he really, Ken became a fifth banana in the series. Not one of the main players, but more important than Les had. Because Les was a sort of occasional character who would pop in now and again when they would go down the crown. So DCT, you mentioned about the good pop game being one of the standard episodes for yourself for season five. I also stand on the side of Les, generally. Not to knock John Thompson as Ken, but the difference being that Les was consistent with his incompetence, whereas Ken is just out-and-out incompetent. Yeah, Les was just kind of grotty, but Ken was just unreliable. But The Good Pub Guide has this sense of nostalgia to it because it has this detail, which I'll get back to later on, but I was very fond of the A to Z of Men Behaving Badly TV time book, despite the fact that in a fair few circles it's not considered one of the best comedy TV time books, I found it quite enjoyable, and I'm very fond of the concept of this kind of unnecessary detail being incorporated in comedy, and so them to set up their chart as to what makes the best pub and things like that was was definitely an appeal to me, so I, I did enjoy that. Just the kind of element of calling in a sense of nostalgia for a pub I just I quite like the idea of that but then again I do get the impression that series five as a whole was more about nostalgia than say the previous series whereas um, the previous series had perhaps focused more so on laddish aspects I found series five more to be a retrospective for example if you look at the good pub guide it is that sense of nostalgia of what a good pub should be with cardigan it's about trying to reenact the concept of oh right that's it we're going to a rave it's reenactment i just felt that series five although perhaps less stable than the previous series i found it more nostalgic well i was gonna say with um the episode cardigan now in that episode gary seems to be thinking that he's getting to middle age that he's becoming George from his office, so he plans to go to a rave with Dorothy, Tony and Deborah. But of course, with myself coming to age 35 now, it's a case of almost feeling it myself. Thinking, oh, I can't really do this anymore. You can't really go out and to clubs or drinking or have a good sort of night out. Because you're starting to feel... Your age, if you get what I mean. I'm going to uh, interject a personal anecdote here. A few years back, I was a mature student, and I deliberately decided that I, I didn't want to annex myself. I, didn't, I don't want to put myself amongst the Mature Students Association. I just felt, you know, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly, I'm going to get involved in all the different sort of clubs and societies and so on. So on a handful of occasions, I was... I suppose you could say coerced into going out to student union events of an evening and some of them were not I wouldn't say rave I think this is well past rave culture but they were basically dark loud and very 
hot and, and horrible and sweaty and, and environments that I wasn't really accustomed to. And that episode, Cardigan, went through, and I'm sure you can think of exactly what scene I'm talking about, that went through my mind many, many times. At no point did I ever actually say to anybody, would somebody please put me to bed? I've been trying to climb inside my own shoe for the past hour. And it never got that bad, thankfully. But I could appreciate where Gary was coming from when the first time I ever saw the episode, and looking back on it now, I can definitely understand his uh, uncomfortableness. So. It, is, it is that moment where, um, in the episode, obviously, where we're in the um, Atverave, where Gary sort of lurches towards the uh, camera he does, because he's totally out of it, that he's tired, he's knackered, if I do remember that, he does throw up in front of a camera. Yes. He does. <laughs> yes. It's just this yeah. thing of, I'm totally knackered, I can't do it anymore, really. One thing is I really like about the episode, actually, in, in contrast to an episode of Peep Show from a few years ago, there's one episode of Peep Show where Mark is talked into going to uh, a gay club, and amongst the thoughts that are going through his mind are... It was supposed to be one drink, not four drinks, and then onto a gay club. Why is it the people who want to do things always win out over those who don't? And and particularly the line which I have occasionally found myself thinking this in the past when I was at some of those SU events: How did I get here, and will I ever be allowed to leave? But in contrast to that episode, even though the rave is like the central plot device, the fact that they're going out to this as a viewer, you're only in the rave for nothing less than 60 seconds, maybe only be in about half a minute or so, because that's not the point, we know that he's going to be a fish out of water, we know that Gary's going to be uncomfortable, and if they spent like 5 or 10 minutes setting that up it would have been rather pointless, because there's never going to be anything other than that, particularly as, as we, we understand the more and more that we get to know Gary we know that he's not exactly somebody who was ever a fixture on the social seen, so to speak, so it is not really his environment to begin with, let alone in his mid Yeah. You get the setting up as they're going to a sort of rave, don't you, where they're in the uh, van or car, Gary's saying, I can do this, I, I can still do it at my age, oh, I don't feel old, that he still feels young, but of course, by the time they've been to a rave, it's an acceptance to say, I am old now, you know, I can't do it. And he's got to accept it. That's partly the um, thing which goes on. I suspect that quite a bit of that was because uh, that was the drink talking. And that's, as he explains, for a long period of time in the car, he was working from a map of Dieppe, which is why they couldn't actually find where the rave was being staged. DCT, you're listening to us and you're thinking, oh, blame me, you two, couple old farts and what have you. You've got all this to look forward to. So don't be sitting there all smug, saying, oh, I'm all right, I'm still in my 20s and what have you. Before you know it, it's all going to creep up on you. Well, you say that, but I would counteract with the fact that even when that went out, and I was young enough to acknowledge it at the time, but I respected and appreciated the determination of Gary wanting to try and re- reenact that point because even at that point in my life by the time I watched it I felt like I'd missed that and by the time I actually did experience that I felt more like how he did in that 60 second or so scene when I was at university in 2003 early 2003 I pretty much had that night and all I know is that it wasn't just a case of being sick it was being it was a various series of events. There was 
myself at one point being the only white guy dancing in a packed out club. There was me chatting up a girl while she was sitting next to her prom date who then sulked off as I got her number. There was at least two bottles of Jack Daniels, several shots of various things, several pints of cider, a fair bit of vodka involved. There was then going can to... I just, can, I say, can I just interject at this point? Two bottles of Jack Daniels. But you personally had two bottles of Jack Daniels in the night. There is an end to the means, trust me. Because then I was then sick in a cubicle. I remember coming out of the cubicle. There were women on both sides of me staring at me. And then I turned around. There was a, there was a female bouncer with half a chewed off ear waiting at the door asking me to escort me out. And I apparently had been so was so drunk that I was escorted out of the female toilets. You were so drunk that you'd bitten off half her ear beforehand. I had done a Tyson. No, long story short, three days later, I had my appendix removed. Oh, I see. So you're blaming all on that now, are you? Oh, I definitely believe it that... Was, it wasn't me, it was there's the appendix a link, There's talking. a link to the two bottles of Jack Daniels and the appendix saying, I've had enough, get me out of here, please. I, I believe I put so much pressure on my liver that it pushed my appendix out. <laughs> my flatmate at uni once said to me, do you know what, I think I've, I've got a, a, a terrible pain in, in, in the liver, and, and he was sort of, what he thought he was rubbing it at the time, and I said, well, you've definitely got a problem with it, if, if that's what it is, because that's actually your kidneys that you're rubbing. I don't know, I don't know, I mean, maybe he had a roving liver or something, I don't know. But that's a couple of episodes of Season 5. Any other episodes of Season 5 stand out for you two? I would say um, the episode Cowardice as well. There's Gary um, currently stepping out of an aggressive driving dispute, so he um, hires a large man to prove his manhood. But of course, it doesn't go to a plan. That he's more scared of a large man than he is of the... Um, the other person. It all comes home to roost, it does, with Gary and Tony there speculating whether there is a lesbian. Yes. So, of course, it goes wrong for Gary in that episode that his plan to prove his manhood actually backfires on him by the person that he's hired. The large man basically intimidates him more. Yeah, and I think I'm right in saying that the man that Gabby actually has hired unwittingly is played by Ben Moore, and Ben Moore wrote one of, in my own opinion, one of the best Radio 4 comedy shows called Elastic Planet. Around about that time, actually, it was about 1995, and it does turn up on Radio 4 Extra every once in a while. It's narrated by Oliver Postgate. But yeah, I was actually thinking of Cowardice just early on, because I was watching an episode of Inbetweeners, in which uh, Jay has uh, created the now popular phrase, bus wankers, and then decides to use it later on in the middle of London, before Simon finds himself in a traffic jam and does a gaddy and just sort of slinks down in the uh, the seat and waits until the, the trouble's all passed. DCT, any other particular episodes in Season 5? Well, the thing is about Series 5 as well is that you do have, aside from Rich and Fat, which, once again, is a nostalgia episode for me, in that at this point where you've got Cardin, you've got Rich and Fat following each other as well, you've got this element of they know that they're coming out of the lad culture, they know that they're getting older... Even though this was a year on, but nevertheless. The thing is, with Homemade Sauna, now, this is an interesting retrospect because it is a one-all for Gary and Dorothy because this is the episode where Gary gets to play away and Tony fails. And 
Gary, after Series Four, needs that little victory, needs that small victory, to put him on the same level as Dorothy, because ultimately, at this point, even up to this point, and there are references, very sly references in Series Five, but generally speaking, at this point, Dorothy and Tony still betrayed him. So it is important at the end of Series Five for that character to develop and not feel necessarily as bitter as he was to cheat on Dorothy and get away with it. It's like you were saying there, that really the lad culture is, you know, it's sort of at its at its end then, around 1996, we're sort of going from new lad culture to what became sort of girl and woman power with the Spice Girls, if you get what I mean by then. Men Behaving Badly tried to take itself from being more sort of lag culture in this series, and I know that you said nostalgic DCT, to a more ordinary sitcom by this point. Yes, there were points where it was showing lag culture, crudity, etc, etc, but it was becoming more conventional. And that was partly through the popularity of a series by getting more and more viewers watching it. Yeah, I would say also because you have the A to Z of Men Behaving Badly came out, I believe, around the same time Series 4 came out. So ultimately, I I think it also further emphasises its peak and that anything after that, Series 5 and Series 6, is very much them evolving as characters. And the other thing about Series 5 is that Aside from the nostalgia element, it is definitely an evolution, whereas around Series 4, that was about the time in 1995 when the A to Z of Behaving Badly was released. Certainly a peak in the series. And so I think Series 5 and Series 6 and the specials are about the characters evolving. And as you said, Boggs, with girl power emanating through around this time as well, I do believe that there was a certain element with certain magazines for example, Loaded, Sky, and Arena magazines. With the exception of Loaded, if I'm not mistaken, both Sky and Arena are now defunct. Maxim, I don't know if that's still going. And FHM is still going, I believe. Although I do remember when Maxim, I believe this is in the early 2000s, it was taken over by an American company. And I don't know who the editor was, but it was made like a parody of itself. And... I would recommend to anyone to seek out, I would say around 2002 era Maxims, because they got a very cynical thing going on there, and it's absolutely hilarious. I was at university at the time, and there wasn't many options of magazines to purchase at the at the place on campus, so I ended up buying Maxim. But as it turns out, it was hilarious. It was actually very funny. It was really really cynical of itself which just made it a very interesting read because there was lots of tiny little in-jokes and references to the fact that completely parodying what it was but on the other hand I do remember Sky Magazine having some very bizarre moments there is a place in London I'd recommend for anyone to investigate called Vinmag and if you go down into the basement they have all the magazines there that you can purchase from the last 60-70 years and they do have a 
huge insight into the fact that you can access all the old loaded skies, arenas, even Esquires, Playboys or whatever you fancy or FHMs and so forth. But it's very interesting looking at that era because Sky Magazine, I remember they had a 10-year retrospective. It's just saying, oh, do you remember how big cans of Sapporo were and things like that? It's a very odd moments and... That's another thing I love about Men Behaving Badly, really, as, as a whole, uh, it is the fact that it does certainly represent an era. And just to bring it round to back to the end of Series 5, by that point, I do find that it was aware of the fact that it was moving forward, that it was developing, and realising that the lad culture was kind of evolving into something else as well. And the fact that girl power didn't necessarily mean that the lad culture had completely disappeared. But you have to bear in mind that also you have things like the Girly Show, which was a girl power show preceded as ladette culture. If I'm not mistaken, when was the word out? Because that was earlier on, wasn't that was it? A, that was about 1994, the word was. 93, 94. I think it was... I think the word's earlier than that. The word was about 90 when it actually started. But yeah, right about this time, yeah, they had the girlish show, the Spice Girls came to the fore in late 96, and you had people like Zoe Ball and, and Denise Van Outen doing breakfast shows. And yes, stuff. yeah. Well, the Girly show, if I'm not mistaken, it ran for two series on Channel 4. The word is believed to be its official parent, but the Girly show if I'm not mistaken, ran for two series from 96 and 97, so this ties in in that respect, where it was this evolution from Men Behaving Badly, where by the time Men Behaving Badly finished, they were somewhat undermined by the concept of this ladette culture, which I think, as far as I'm aware, was a different kind of feminism. Now, of course, I don't believe that I'm in any position to comment on that as such, but I would say that in relation to Men Behaving Badly, you do get the impression, whereas before Series 5... It was something of a yay drink, yay booze, yay women, yeah, you know. It 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 kind of took a different turn for series five onwards. I would say I'd, I'd say it was it made it less celebratory, and as I said before, it made it more nostalgic. It made it more a retrospect for who are we, where are we going, as opposed to this is it, this is now. Yeah, I think that the early episodes it's principally about establishing. Gary and Dermot and then Gary and Tony as the characters who they are, the way that they behave and so on, whereas yeah, as you say by the time you get into series 4, series 5 it fits in with what we were saying in the last podcast, the fact that Dorothy and Deborah are more to the fore in the later series as but well I was going to say by that time by 95, 96, 97 um, because you had on Channel 4 the um, on the flip side of Men Behaving Badly of course you had Dressing for Breakfast which you could say was women behaving badly. I just discovered that that was on 4OD the other day, and I was gobsmacked to discover that there were three series of it. I remember it being on, and I remembered some of the reviews at the time, and I just assumed that it was something that had one series and then disappeared without a trace, but no, apparently it, was, it had the whole three series out of it, so good well, on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like you were saying, really, with the girly show, being the continuation of the word, obviously being the same sort of production company who made um, the girly show as well. And the girly show was, I think I'm saying, scheduled late on a Friday night opposite 
Fantasy Football League, which was very much lad culture, Frank Skinner and, and David Brion and so on. I think as we're moving into Season 6 now, I think it's fair to say that Season 6, I think the show loses its way a little bit. Personally speaking, I, I felt that perhaps the, the show had largely run its course by this point, and there were some episodes where there really wasn't a great deal to say there wasn't a great deal in terms of character development or plot development or whatever it may be. But Bog and Strovia, first of all, what's your thoughts on season six? Well, I thought, uh, like you were saying, it really had run its course a series by 1997. It had run out of steam. But it was only really in that season things to sort of be tied up and maybe characters... You know, they had developed by that point, and there's only so many different ways that you can go with characters in their relationships with each other. Yeah. And any particular episodes stand out, good or bad, in that series for yourself? Well, I was going to say the episode uh, Watching TV, where they all sit down for a night in front of a telly. Um, and they just play tricks on uh, Tony, but of course. In between them, they start um, reminding each other and talking about old TV shows they do with each other. Now, at some point, we've all done it. We've all sat down, say, with family and friends. There's been words flying between each other, humour about what's on the telly, etc., etc., or what we think is good and what we think is bad. You know, when we do watch a telly. And 1997 was just about predating the time when that became particularly fashionable and suddenly I think it was a lot to do with getting towards the end of the decade and century and millennia and so on. The fact that you suddenly had this whole spate of programmes, I love, year, 100 greatest this, 100 worst that, so and so on. And yeah, for a while I mean, you couldn't escape flip shows, particularly on BBC Two and Channel 4 and so on. 1997, of course, there was another televisual event that was around and about at this particular time. It wasn't actually created in 1997, but I think it was around about the time that it underwent a bit of a development and perhaps would have become a channel that Gary and Tony would have favoured quite a bit. So, DCT, any thoughts from yourself about Series 6? Well, I enjoyed watching TV, the episode, that is to say, but there's one element of it that bugged me severely because if you look... Is it the ending? It's the ending. The ending yes. <laughs> frustrates me because if you look at, say, Father Ted, within the context of that reality, that could potentially be doable. Within certain shows you watch, like the young ones as well, for example, they stretch their reality where you go, that's fine, that's acceptable, that makes sense. It has a foot in this world, it has a foot in something else entirely. Men Behaving Badly never did that. It always had its two feet in this one familiar world so to do this thing where it's beam me up scotty which also incidentally incredibly cheesy to do that and then fade out there's no need whatsoever for that sense of ominousness it's completely unnecessary oh does that mean it's a complete waste of time but i was gonna say using maybe american tv terminology i sure that's not the point really where the um series junked the shark so to speak, with that sort of ending. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't over-egg the pudding. I mean, it is a silly throwaway ending. It's awful. Um, 
Yeah, Awful. I mean, it, it's not... Don't be too much of a spoiler if we actually just say what it is. It's basically Shit. the fact that they've been having a conversation... <laughs> they've been having a conversation about Star Trek uh, for much of the episode, and eventually, at the end of the episode, they... What would you say? Teleport? Was that the expression? I don't it's, know. I don't just eradicate into existence and pointless. Exactly. Now, it's just a silly throwaway ending, but what it reminded me of a, a great deal... I was and still am a huge fan of bottom and i'm really really looking forward to when we record sitcom club about that show now this might be stretching the laws of probability a bit far but i would argue that there's nothing that i can think of in season two and i'm sure we're going to get people screaming at the the ipods right now and sending us tweets and so on there's nothing in the first two series of bottom that i can think of that actually breaks the laws of the universe now you can say that for example, Eddie is unlikely to get back up again after having knocked back the bleach from under the sink. However, it's all still operating within a certain set of boundaries. But one of the things would be the episode Holy. Now, there's a sequence where Richie and Eddie are opening their presents, right, in Eddie's bedroom, and obviously they're looking at different presents that uh, Richie's given to. Eddie. Now, of course, there's several looks to the camera, certainly down the lens to the audience at home, of Eddie looking bored and frustrated. And there's one moment, Eddie's made uh, Richie a play telescope. Yes. yes. And it's the moment where he sort of sticks his hand almost into the camera to say it's perspective. Yeah. Is and it it's that? almost to the viewers at home. It is now that is definitely sort of breaking. The fourth oh wall. no, no, I know, I know they break the fourth wall. Yeah, they break the fourth wall on pl- plenty of occasions, particularly, particularly Eddie. Um, in the first couple of series, that that's fine. I don't have, a, I don't have any concern about that. I mean, Mr. Humphreys in Are You Being Served breaks the fourth wall many times. But what I was thinking of in terms of an analogy with men behaving badly is at the end of the first episode of series where Richie and Eddie have been stuck in the Ferris wheel all night. And that's actually one of my favourite episodes, especially the fact that it's just the two of them, a claustrophobic environment, they're always uh, really enjoyable episodes. However, the ending of it, suddenly they are presented with the, not Diego Maradona, but literally the hand of God coming to rescue them. And the first time that I saw that, I thought, oh... And I, I just I felt deflated, and from that point onwards, there were bits and pieces that happened later on in that series where it was, for example, Richie chainsaws Eddie's legs off, and then Eddie sews him back on the face in the wrong way. Th- things like that where this wouldn't have happened in the earlier series because, like we say, there are certain boundaries. Nothing, not, I'm not talking about like, taste and decency, nothing like that. I'm just talking about in terms of realism. And, and stretching realism almost to breaking point, but not actually breaking it. It seemed to me more about playing to the crowd. It's like the kind of thing that you might have anticipate would happen in the stage version of the show. And whereas you, you have sort of different expectations when it comes to the, the small screen. So DCT, is that, I think, a fair analogy with how you felt at the end of watching TV? I do think that is a decent format for a sitcom episode. The concept of character sitting there in one room watching something that we can't see and talking about it i think that's absolutely fine it was literally just that ending that i just found to be not applicable or relevant for this series i think in some series you can definitely get away with that but not not men behaving badly that wasn't agreeable for me 
On the other hand, I would say Series 6 predominantly suffers from an element of stereotypical. Jealousy, watching TV, and 10, I would say, are all examples of this. I would say they're all these plots that are quite well explored being explored, essentially. I'm very fond of Sofa. I like the fact that we get a little glimpse into the life of Gary before Tony, before even Dermot, in relation to the sofa. I do like that. And that, that that's kind of a nostalgic callback as well. So I do... I, Very keen on his first day at work, with his suit and his haircut and stuff. Yes, yeah. And, and I like how they allude back to the fact that he had a buzz cut back then, if I'm not mistaken, like he did in Series 1. So, yeah, I don't know. Series 6 was a strange one for me, but it was generally all right. I wasn't keen on watching TV, the ending specifically, but generally I'm okay with it. For your own CDC team, we need closure on this now. We've got to let that ending go and just say it's happened. Nothing we can do about it now. Well, it's fair to say that with Wedding, for example, Episode 2, because Episode 1 you have Stag Night, Episode 2 you have Wedding, Episode 2 Wedding, you do have a hefty proportion of it acting as a precursor, arguably, to what eventually became a whole genre, a whole subgenre of comedy in relation to uh, found footage or, or being filmed, uh, the concept of um, it all being sort of camera footage. Yeah, well, we're working our way back to uh, Marion and Jeff here, aren't we? Yeah, Marion and Jeff, and you could also say uh, Paul Carf's video diary. Let us remember, say, in the early 90s, uh, um, not in comedy, but prevalent was uh, video diaries. Of course, with things like In Bed With Chris Needham, now, they were the biggest things uh, going at that time, these video diaries. So, seeing um, footage scene comedy or video camera filmed events like weddings, etc., is those um, early sort of attempts it is of doing that. So, that uh, features quite a bit in the episode where. We believe Gary and Dorothy are going to tie the knot, although things don't go quite as smoothly as they plan. I think that also, I would believe that Clive is behind, who we've never seen and still don't see, but Gary's, if you like, original friend that we only really hear about before, used to flat share before he was flat sharing with Dermot. We believe that Clive is actually behind the camera in the episode. Now, gentlemen, for two points, can you spot an aberration? with regards to character development and plot when it comes to the episode Jealousy? No. <laughs> okay, if you cast your mind back to series 3 where Gary was sent out to get some milk and magnesia for Dorothy and Gary at that point had a driving license seemingly because he took Dorothy's car to Piccadilly Circus. However, in Jealousy it seems that Gary has never learned to drive. Um, continuity error. A huge one, if you ask me. Well, of course, this is just just before the days of having the shows repeated ad infinitum on on UK Gold. So maybe they were sort of thinking, ah, we can sort of go year zero and that, so to speak. We can have a bit of a hard reboot. But yeah, Jealousy was actually one of my favourite episodes of uh, Series 6. And again, just having the four of them, claustrophobic environment, having the appearance of outsiders, so to speak. Yeah, no, as a standalone episode, I think that works really well. 
But isn't that the best comedy where you get characters, especially in sitcoms, where you put them together in a claustrophobic situation? Not in the um, case of... Well, you sort of get it in Steptoe and Sam, but I'm thinking more of um case of something like The Goodies, where you sort of get them uh, trapped together, say, in a lighthouse or um, where the sort of end of the world is going to occur, that sort of thing, where you can get the sort of... Um, all the characters bouncing off each other so they can have arguments, you know, they can throw lines between each other. Yeah. And as we've spoken about previously, there was an episode of Chalk, which was very much along those lines of the teachers getting locked in the staff room. It was actually primarily driven by the budget almost running out for the series. And so they needed to have an episode which was rather minimal in terms of um, different locations and so on. So we now approach, chaps, we now approach the end of 1997, and it's Christmas Day. And whereas the year before... I think about 20-odd million people were watching uh, Only Fools and Horses making a triumphant return to the small screen, as we fought at the time for the last time, although actually it wasn't. But uh, yeah, Christmas Day in 97, Men Behaving Badly took centre stage as the big Christmas night show on BBC One. Um, now, Boggs, what were your thoughts on this? Is this the best particular show? I really enjoyed this one. Uh, yeah, Jingle it Ball. was a good um, Christmas special, it was. With Jingle Balls... It was sort of half split with a sort of fantasy sequence of an old-time perfect Christmas round a piano and the actual reality of what was going on, the absolute chaos of cooking and people getting overexcited by presents. In it, Gary's Christmas is bad, all, all the cooking's going bad, it is not getting on with people. Deborah really wants to uh, split apart from Tony, who, of course, is way overexcited by his present, which is a drum kit. It's almost like a a family sort of Christmas, with Tony being the child, Gary sort of being the grumpy father, and Deborah not really wanting to be in the same room. Yeah. It's interesting that in previous years, and I know this, I don't want to boil this down and make it sound too simplistic, but in previous years, you would have had shows like Terry and June, for example, which would have presented a certain type of Christmas, a Christmas which you might say was almost unattainable and the way that for example it's presented in commercials and so on whereas gradually as you get into the 1990s and so on gradually you get more and more sort of realism creeping into i'm talking specifically here because of course you've got that uh, always you've always got that be it bbc2 or channel 4 or whatever it may be but specifically in terms of mainstream bbc1 sitcoms you've got more and more realism creeping in and here is this nice juxtaposition in this episode between how it's presented in the, the christmas card it's almost like a Christmas card come to life, and then the rather grim setting of the flat itself. I call it what if as a concept. I do think, I like the Christmas episode, but I do feel that it really just needed the opening fantasy sequence. After that, I just found a lot of it, like you had Gary and Dorothy waking up and going, oh, and it just it was just so over the top. It just, it, 
I found it quite grating and quite cheesy. And I know that was part of the intent, but for the most part, I just found it quite unnecessary. I think the great contrast at the beginning, which then cuts to Gary mugging a bloke in the rain and Tony talking to a dog. I thought that's all you really needed. I didn't think it needed to milk that. I think I, don't, I think as a as a premise, I think it could have literally just given you a little what if window, and that's it. I don't think it needed to throw the contrast off. Oh well, here's them if everything yeah. was okay, and here's what but, it actually is. But I, I was think you could have just got that. You sort of get it in um, Christmas episodes, but you certainly got that in older sitcoms. Christmas episodes, like one we will be doing in the next couple of weeks, Are You Being Served, that it, it was a sitcom, you could say, combined with a variety show with singing and dancing. But in Men Behaving Badly, to see those sort of um, Victorian, like you said, what ifs, it was almost there to, okay, it sets up a what if, but all the rest of it, it's sort of filler material. Oh, we need to pack out the episode. We haven't got quite enough writing. So I'll oh, put in another what if here. That's what it felt like, really. I would say, DCT, that the fact that it's so sort of overplayed, as you say, it is it's intended to be like that. It actually reminded me in a funny way, Box, you've written about the Christmas Night with the Stars shows in the past. It reminded me very much of that of the perhaps the, the cheesier aspects of those or some of the shows of its ilk. It wouldn't have surprised me if they suddenly said, oh, look who it is, it's Ben Crosby. <laughs> like you say, it would be like that. Gary and Tony and Deborah and Dorothy, someone sort of turning up at the house to say, oh, it's so-and-so, they're going to sing a song. Oh, here's someone to do his comedy routine. It did feel like that. Whereas maybe something like that, the actual episode felt like it might have been, like in the old days, you would get a sort of a shorter episode. One being, of course, the all-star comedy carnival from 1972, the On The Buses episode, which we said about with uh, Blakey and Jack chasing the goose. Oh God, we'll, we'll come on to that one day. Oh well, we could do uh, we could do a whole uh, series of podcasts about that well, show alone. I was going to say, it, Jingle Balls does feel like it would have been one of those type. Oh, here's a fifteen minute special put into one of those type shows. I know it's stretched, say, um, for forty five minutes, but it does have the feeling of that as well. The other thing I was going to say there, Box, is that why I think those little what-ifs, as you call them, uh, as you say, DCT, one reason why I think that they, they do work relatively well, I think they're slightly, slightly welcome, but one thing I think works well with them is the audience for this in 1997 is largely going to be 30-something, 40-something, 50-something and so on. And those people, of course, they were brought up on things like Christmas Night with the Stars and Val Dunican shows and so on, and that's how Christmas was presented each and every year in this sort of unattainable ideal of perfection that you could yeah, you could never hope to replicate this in your own home, but you were always sort of told on the television that this was how Christmas was. I would counteract that by saying that by the late 90s, I would have argued that 
on the basis of the fact that you'd have a, a numerous amount of repeats as well at this point, generating with uh, the evolution of Sky and so forth, I don't think it's entirely necessary to indicate to any audience by the late 90s of how of the Christmases of yesteryear were as such in that respect by mocking them outwardly. If that's what they were aiming to do, I'm not convinced it was successful because I think even just by having the one contrast at the beginning, you get that point hammered through. And I think beyond that, it's it goes from cynical to just sort of bleak and then, and then just kind of tacky. And I do feel that with a Christmas special in the late 90s that's drawing this contrast of, oh, this is the real life and this is what you remember it to have been like potentially. I think even the extremes of the what if were so unrealistic expectations that even by that standard it was still disappointing because they're not even close to a reality that is relatable it's more of a close reality that is an ideal that no one has ever got to and if and they it, do it, they're it not the type does, of people who it does come <laughs> to almost like you were saying a period of ridiculousness you know going from uh setting the scene to like you were saying tacky it is something which can be grating by the end. Don't forget that, obviously, Christmas Day, your main sort of a sitcom and all like that, you know, you're going to get the biggest viewing figures of the day. So, of course, it's got to appeal to the fans of Men Behaving Badly and to casual viewers as well. So it's accepted that you have to do it for them as well. Um, one last thing I'll just say on this on this point about the uh, the flashbacks, so to speak. DCT it was interesting that you said there about how, given repeats and so on, you didn't think it was necessary to try and explain that idea of uh, the television Christmases of the past. Funnily enough, the very same day, Christmas night, ninety seven, this went out on BBC Two was a documentary called Cardigans at Christmas and it's been repeated on BBC4 latterly in the last few years, and that focused very much on things like the Val Dunican shows and so on. And if you actually put those two shows side by side, then Men Behaving Badly actually was, was perfect complement to having seen that show earlier on in the evening, because you knew exactly uh, what it was aimed at. That context, I think, can be slightly lost when it suddenly turns up on gold in, in the middle of July. So what, what were your thoughts chaps, I'll come to DCT, come to yourself first of all, what were your thoughts on, on the main body of the show itself and the, what you might call the, the grim reality of Christmas Day for I suppose a lot of people. I think it was relatively self-contained for the most part. I enjoyed it, I just found the what if moments were a little bit unnecessary, they are a little bit hammered in and it kind of reminded me a little bit of that watching TV me up Scotty moment to a point where it was just sort of well you've really grounded this reality and it's it it it's it for me it was like the equivalent of say father ted had it reached series three and decided it was going to be a little bit more grated in reality it would have been a bit like that in reverse it's a bit like that concept of oh well actually even with the likes of the simpsons if you look at the simpsons with the early series it had a certain reality that is established where certain things were doable, certain things could happen, other things may or may not be happening. And when it sort of emerged into its about 12th season onwards, it kind of suddenly there was this sort of unfeasible concept of, 
oh, well, actually, no, the jockeys are people who live in an underworld and they all sing and they all conspire and it's just, ugh. And, and, and this is where they, I think I get the impression this is where they were slightly more aware of this. In but that it's, 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 it's one thing that you would say with that, um, there is a word for sort of keeping it into reality, which is verisimilitude, trying to keep it as something happening, but as reality. That it is something real going on. Well, yeah, I mean, British Empire was totally all over the place in that respect. British Empire is a complete mess uh, in terms of reality because on the basis it never really settled in. Men Behaving Badly has less of an excuse in that respect, so I think that's why it kind of was slightly disappointed me in terms of this kind of era. Although I would say, not to sort of bring us forward, but I would say that that's where The Last Order's three episodes perhaps reins it back in a bit and makes it far more I think it was a triumphant return and I think that was far better than the last series and the Christmas special well let's let's come on to that just now because as I mentioned there before in 1996 Only Fools and Horses ran a trilogy over Christmas night 27th to 29th of December it's a great success now this was then replicated by Men Behaving Badly in 1998 the last three regular episodes ran in that manner now Borgen Strovia first of all the episode that went out on Christmas night 1998 and I'm gonna just make myself sound like a pain in the arse techie fanboy I was watching it in widescreen ladies and gentlemen, in 1998 because I'd gone out and bought, bought, paid for an on-digital box on Christmas Eve 1998 for which I paid 200 quid. Yes, I'm a twat. Anyway, the point is, yeah, 1998, Christmas 1998, it was a bloody good episode. I thought it was a little bit controversial in the fact that it actually went out on Christmas night. Yeah, I was going to say that the episode, I think, was one of its best, and I would say the best of the three the last three, if you get what I mean, but like you were saying, that the subject matter about pornography, masturbation, going out on a Christmas night, to some people it would be offensive, but to other people they would just love it. It's whichever side of offence you come down on. It's a sort of similar thing with the 1997 episode like again with the what ifs people knowing old Christmas specials and all like that, traditional and all like that. But you would have to say that's okay, you had um something like Only Fools and Horses, the uh, trilogy of the last three episodes. But of course it was something different. It was a different sort of thing to have on as a main sitcom of the evening and a subject matter as well. Now, like I said, we've been through uh, lag culture, through girl power by that point. But it's almost that it had to be done. It had to be done to um, alleviate, you know, the sort of issues with it. It needed to be shocking, the shocking sense, to sort of bring Christmas sitcoms into a modern age by having different issues like that pornography, masturbation, 
though it also had the issue of Gareth and Dorothy crying for a baby. So you could say, yeah, it's put in a more sort of modern and maybe family-based context because uh, you do get in Christmas episodes people being pregnant, giving birth, etc., etc., like with the royal family. It needed to happen to push a boundary forward in the sort of sitcom you could have on Christmas Day. Yeah, I think that the BBC themselves said later on, like, okay, we may have made an error on actually pushing out that particular episode on Christmas night. DCT, what were your thoughts on episode one of the, the trilogy? I liked the fact that it knew it was going somewhere. I liked the fact that it was not so much just the first part, but I liked the fact that it generally was perceived as... This is going to be set over a little period of time. It knows where it's going. It's A to B. And it has the same. And it's, once again, that sort of slight sum up of maturity. It's, well, we're trying for a baby. But in the meantime, there are many things that might happen when we can't have a baby. But at the same time, this was all summed up rather neatly and tidily over these three extended episodes from on Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and on the 28th of December 1998. So it kind of did exactly what it needed to do in a certain amount of time. But I found that with the first episode, yeah, I mean, the if I'm not mistaken, I've been right in saying that's the one where he wakes up and the tissue's stuck to his face. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It is interesting as well that I find that it continues this slight interest in having these location episodes with episode two of... The Last Orders trilogy have them out and about in town, in supposedly in Worthing, and it just seems like an ongoing thing. Like they sort of like they want to take it out into this sort of this world. I mean, the last series you had them um, out in the campsite, and before that you've seen um, Gary uh, on the hideout. Uh, there's quite a lot of location stuff really throughout the series. Um, but does it really um, help it in um, sort of Last Orders? trilogy that they do go to Worthing. There could have been three episodes, for instance, which could have just uh, stayed in their flats. I guess it's a budgetary thing as well, I suppose. I think if if you're going to have a feature length that's going to be at Christmas, you might as well sort of go out, get out of the studio, I suppose. Although... Well, you can see it going along on that point. Yeah, you can see it by uh, various sitcoms who've obviously... Uh, done it before memorably only falls and horses with miami twice episodes and to hollenbeck and the jolly boys outing yeah but sitcoms have done it before so there is it's right that maybe that they had to do it then i really enjoyed episode two of last orders i think it's a lovely standalone episode i think actually i don't know it wouldn't have happened like this because obviously they would have wanted to start the trilogy on christmas night as they did but i think that this episode would have worked perfectly for christmas night it wouldn't have got the complaints about the material being too racy and also the fact that because it's got a different setting and because it's just completely taken it out of itself in a way it, it, it works in the same way something like for example the episode of gavin and stacy from series three when the I'll go to the beach for the day. Um, a lot of people forget that, that was a Christmas night episode because, of course, there's nothing remotely Christmassy about it. But I think that there's a there's a point behind that because by the time you get to 
certainly late evening, and I think probably for a lot of people, even when you get to say four or five o'clock in the day, you know, you may well have had your fill at Christmas, and you're quite happy to see something, anything which is set far away from Christmas, uh, and that's why things like Jolly Boys Outing work perfectly on Christmas night, whereas you wouldn't get those kind of things on Christmas Eve, for example. It's a case of escapism with that. People want to be uh, out and about. They want to see something different. If they've got Christmas decorations and food still on the table, they want to see something on the screen which is completely different. If you were to put on, say, something with trees, tinsel, you know, they'd just get bored and say, I'm not going to watch this. They, they'd turn it on to something else. You can't over-Christmas Christmas. Well, we mentioned earlier on about the traditional Christmas programmes of the past. Um, the shows that Val Dunigan did that were most successful were on Christmas Eve. And the reason being that that's when you're actually in the mood for Christmas. By the time you get to the end of Christmas night, I think most people are quite happy to have a complete change of scenery. Finally, we get on to episode 3 of Last Orders. And this brings not just the trilogy, but the entire series to a conclusion. Now, Boggenstrovia, first of all, how did you find this as as a finale? I thought it was as good as it could really be that it sort of ties up most of the uh, loose ends and it sort of gives it a full stop to the whole series in the episode uh, that Tony uh, takes off a job as a uh, postman but, of course, his relationship with Deborah is being wobbly because she sort of thinks that she's lost the Tony that she'd fallen in love with. And, of course, um, Dorothy goes into labour. So, of course, um, Gary and Tony have to deliver the baby they do. So, as a final episode, it's a good ending to uh, stop on really. Nice twist as well, the fact that for five of the six years, Deborah has been resisting Tony, and for the final year, she has been unhappy about him still having his childish behaviour and so on. And then finally, when he changes, she wants the old Tony back. DCT, what were your thoughts on the final last orders? I think by making the character of Tony boring and dull and unappealing in an unfamiliar way and placing Gary in that mode of anticipation and dreading the element of change and, and the fact that the closing down of the office and everything, I think it puts into perspective the a nice little element of, on the one hand, things are moving on, things are changing, but on the other hand, by Tony then returning to the fray in that moment of panic when Dorothy's finally giving birth that you get a little glimpse of, hey, they still got it, hey, beers and uh, lads, hey, you know, and, and I think that was the appeal, that it was sort of, from a writing perspective, the tension, the blocking point was, oh, wait a minute, Tony's boring, Tony's no longer a lad, Tony's grown up, what's going on? And so then to alternate that with, oh, hang on, he's all right, he's come back, oh, he, it, it reunites them. It's not so even so much about Tony, it just reunites Gary and Tony, the old, the boys are back in town kind of attitude. And I think you need that glimpse, especially since, spoiler alert, but uh, for those of them, but especially since that, of course, if I'm not mistaken, isn't the last shot the beer being thrown as, as everyone nods off 
And that's that's pretty much sums it up. It's sort of like, well, nothing's changed, but now they have a kid. I mean, to be honest, I would have been very fond of seeing a series of them with the child. And it is a kind of scary thought to consider the fact that if they were to do a return one-off episode, the kid now would be 15. And... To be honest, that would be a whole new world. I think that would be a very interesting. I like the idea that maybe at this point, I don't know, I do think there is a completely legitimate way they could work that in because you've got the... But it, it would be a case of, okay, they wouldn't be lads anymore, they wouldn't, because, you know, 15 years has passed and trying to be lads for maybe after all that time, you know, would seem a bit ridiculous, so maybe... That they're sort of being jealous of the kid. Say if it's a boy, and it was sort of boys starting to be a bit of a lad, if you get what I mean. So whether it would be Gary and Tony saying, oh no, you don't want to do this and become a lad, we've been this and all like that. But they would secretly also try and be lads at first, whichever ages uh, Gary and Tony would be now. As a setup, I think Men Behaving Badly, if it came back now, would be more like two and a half men. Arguably, you could have Gary as as happily together with Dorothy, and Dorothy's sort of there as she is. And Gary and Dorothy are very much more equals at this point, and the child is in his teens. And then perhaps you've got Tony, who's perhaps still with Deborah, but is very much of a... I don't know. Actually, that'd be quite bleak, wouldn't it? Really. I was. I'm. I'm, I'm glad you you got there prior to DCT because I was going to say, as somebody who really, really is a big, big fan of Men Behaving Badly, and I still watch it in gold. I really do not want to see old Men Behaving Badly. I don't want to see it come back uh, in 2013. And the reason that I say that is because of all of those attempts that have gone before. I'm thinking of things like, for example, say the Liverbirds. Or something like the Doctor in the House revival. When that series came back, Jeffrey Davis was was interviewed about this a few years ago, and he, as he said, it came back to I think about twelve million viewers and and huge appreciation and so on. And within a matter of a few episodes, it was down to five million. And as far as he was concerned, he put that down to the fact that what people were unrealistically expecting. To find on the television was oh it's the boys back together again and they're going to be having the fun and games and and swiftings as they were before but of course they're not because they're 20 years older so of course they're not going to be the same people and they're going to act in the same way but on the flip side of that you could really say that one which actually did it better than the original was the likely lads with whatever happened to the likely lads you know that is claimed to be actually did improve as a series. I would, yeah, I would certainly agree with that. The only thing I would say uh, in regards to that is that there's only a gap of about five or six years between the original series, uh, whereas the, the more time that, that passes, if we start to approach 20 years and so on, and then people are still talking about men behaving badly revival, you just think, okay, at what point do you say enough's enough? We're, we're, we're just not going to consider this anymore. DCT, what, what, do you, what do you think? Would you want to see Men Behaving Badly return as a centrepiece on BBC One on Christmas night this year? Well, when you said old men behaving badly, the first thing that came to mind for me was, well, we've, we've already had that with Still Game. And also we did have the um, series with... Roger Lloyd Pack and Clive Swift. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. So that was sort of 
old men behaving badly as well. I do feel that with men behaving badly, the legacy that it perhaps continued on. I mean, it had, if I'm not mistaken, two series, American series as a spin-off, which essentially was more down to the fact that at the time, I think, honestly, if men behaving badly came back, using the basis of various episodes as it's perched to, to kick off, I think in this current climate it would succeed more. I think back then it wasn't really going to work and it didn't to the most part and half the cast left after the first series if I'm not mistaken and then it was replaced for, for series two of the American men behaving badly but in terms of the merchant I remember going to BHS and you could get all sorts of men behaving badly bath stuff and lager shampoo or all this kind of all this weird concepts and it was an industry at that time you know it was it, by the sort of end of a series it was an industry, like you were saying, with uh, the various bath products, uh, A to Z of behaving badly. We really think of any other sitcom which maybe broke out into sort of mainstream to have products like that. I cannot, I cannot really think of any other. Well, this was at a point as well that when the computer age was emerging as such they did start to get involved a little bit more with certain bbc shows a series they were released via wh smith i remember specifically but you had the fast show only fools and horses i'm pretty sure my behaving badly was in there somewhere but generally yeah they were trying to start this was around the age where they were starting to really consciously franchise things as much as they could and only fools and horses really didn't do that much hugely in comparison to what it does now where it's now got its own convention men behaving badly doesn't have its own convention if i'm not mistaken but then again you wouldn't probably well you might get caroline quentin and uh, neil morrissey and maybe even leslie ash probably not martin clunes but it, it could but really really what could you if you were to say yeah, Only Fools and Horses, yeah, it's got so much to actually have a convention, but what would you really say from men behaving badly? You could hang on in having a convention. Okay, you've got lag culture and all like that, but, you know, that lag culture has been spread so thinly now that there's nothing really to sort of hang on to in that case. Yeah, well, I find that conventions in that respect are generally spread thin as it is i mean if you look at the fact that there aren't many british sitcom conventions at the moment and yet one of them is on the buses so i think it's pretty doable with almost anything maybe badly was certainly more of a generation but on the other hand on the buses does have a bus so i suppose it can travel around a bit but with only fools and horses yes they they but the point is is that with that the merchandise is mostly comes from people who have ripped it off and just kind of made it work for themselves but I do find that Memory Haven Badly was one of the bigger aspects, certainly in my generation, where the franchise button was firmly pushed. And especially now in an age where in my local Waterstones there isn't even a humour section. The TV tie-in world is, is incredibly limited. And I, I always think it's always been slightly on that cusp. But I would argue now, perhaps more so, this is more of a perhaps a comment on there is an incredible inconsistency in regards to the quality of 
frequency of sitcoms and and ones that last long i mean for example i can imagine although i am aware that mitchell and webb have had their own book released i can imagine that a peep show book would go down particularly well and could be relatively detailed especially since it could take a very interesting angle of the fact it'd be from the perspectives of it wouldn't be from their thought process so it would arguably make it more interesting for the for the reader who would be aware of their thought processes while this was happening if I can interject at this point, actually, DCT, there, there has been uh, a Peep Show script book released previously, which does have some additional Mark and Jeremy material in there. And it's worth tracking down if you haven't seen it. Uh, there's a nice conversation, specifically a nice conversation, which I think is largely conducted via post-it notes uh, about Jeremy's habit of pilfering from the fridge when Mark is away. But yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree. I would, I would say there is there is scope for some material on Peep Show. I think that perhaps these days with with tie-in material, it, it tends to be more about technology. It appears to be more about there's an app available for this, or a particular character will. Let's say, for example, I'm I'm thinking what's the chap's name? Gary uh, Bellamy. Uh, played by Reese Thomas and down the line, has his own Twitter feed and he reacts to listeners whilst the show's going out on Radio 4. It tends to be that um, the tie-ins as they are now tend to be more uh, in terms of connecting uh, them with the fans rather than things like specifically like books or big movie spin-off versions, whatever it may be. But of course it's, it's almost the case now that... Uh production companies would say oh well seen it done it other people have done it like you're saying they're looking for new markets like uh, technology based twitter downloads apps etc that's the sort of market that we'd be looking at and of course in other things uh, uh, say now with interactive um adverts that you get QR codes for smartphones who's to say that sitcoms won't be doing that maybe in a couple of years time or maybe one will be doing it in the next few years put up at certain points during the show a QR code so that you can uh, download information to your smartphone I did notice during Vicious on ITV at the moment that's the first sitcom that I've seen to include a Twitter hashtag within the programme itself. It's not obviously, by no means is the first uh, sitcom to be discussed on Twitter real time, but it's the first one I've seen. Um, I've seen that with panel shows, like Have I Got News For You and so on. It's the first time I've ever seen it in a, in a sitcom. It's almost like they want you to, uh, by putting up, say, a uh, Twitter tag, they actively want people to discuss shows. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Like that, you know. I mean, they want they want opinion out there. Say so for something else, like uh, as uh, has been seen on social media uh, recently, of course, with the right way, you know, people's opinion on that. Now, if if you were to put a Twitter tag on that, it's almost like an easy target if you get what I mean. I am going to start the campaign for the second series of the right way. I'm start. I'm forming that campaign. Right now, there we go. I've added my name at the top of the petition. There are currently no other names on it. Yeah, anybody who wants to sign the petition, just just let me know, and I'll add your signature to it. Gentlemen, I'm going to ring the bell. Last orders. Now, before we wrap up 
podcast. DCT, can you just give us a couple of pointers if people want to check out any Memberhaven Badly paraphernalia or any related material? I would say, if you can, seek out the original book by Simon Nye, simply called Memberhaven Badly, originally published in 1984, but like with these other two recommendations I'm going to make, it's very much an eBay job. <laughs> None of these have been republished, as far as I'm aware. Once again, illustrating perhaps more so that they are indeed that of a certain era. Then again, Men Behaving Badly, the complete series on DVD, was released as an anniversary box set not too long ago. So maybe we'll get a re-release at some point. But yes, the A to Z of Behaving Badly, from Simon Nye and Paul Dornan, also worth searching out, both through Amazon... Uh, or A-Books or eBay. And then, of course, The Best of Men Behaving Badly by Simon. A selection of the original scripts, uh, as described on the front cover, the most popular TV comedy of all time. Might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but nevertheless, it has some nice commentaries. Probably the closest we'll get to Simon I doing a commentary, as opposed to having it on the DVD, are in those scripts. So I'd recommend seeking those out. The Best of Men Behaving Badly, the A to Z of Behaving Badly, which is the TV tie-in, and of course the original novel, Men Behaving Badly. Cool, cool. Chaps, thank you once again for your time today. Bogenstrovia, DCT, we shall speak again soon. That was a bumper-length edition, over two parts, of the Sitcom Club. Don't forget that you can find us at sitcomclub.com, and on that page you'll find links to our Twitter handle. You can also find us on Facebook as well, uh, and you'll see full details on there of our forthcoming episodes. And of course you can catch up on our back catalogue of all the episodes that we have previously discussed. So, from myself, Mooncat & Co., from Bog & Strovia, Goodbye. And from Dr. Christian Troy, Cheerio. It is goodbye for now from the Sitcom Club. <laughs>